Last week we looked at some basic facts about Haggai the prophet, and uh, one of those facts was that he was the tenth of twelve minor prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, we went over in the Old Testament, Haggai is known as a post-exilic prophet, and we talked about pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic prophets. And what that means, it's just in reference to their time of exile in Babylon as a nation under the disciplinary hand of God. They found themselves in Babylon for 70 years. And the prophets who prophesied before that exile are known as pre-exilic prophets. The prophets who prophesied during are known as exilic prophets, and that's Ezekiel and Daniel. And then the post-exilic prophets, there was only three of them, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so we're looking at Haggai, the prophet. His name, by the way, means festive or festival. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about him. Um, The Bible doesn't have a lot to say about him. And so we know that he was part of the exile, and he came back after being there for 70-some years, and God chose to use him at this particular point in time to bring a message from God to his people. Um, They were uh, kind of despondent, you might say, at this point. And so God had to bring someone along and give them a little shot in the arm and get them back on track. But this is probably about four to 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene in the New Testament, just to give you a little time reference. We're talking around 520 B.C. when, these, when this book and his uh, prophecies were given. Now, you might remember from last week that um, these were the last men in the Old Testament to speak before Christ came on the, sp- the scene. So there was a, several hundred years of silence. And uh, in the New Testament, you had John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, but then you had Christ himself. And so it's when these children of Judah were in the land of Babylon in exile that uh, when they came out of that captivity... They're free. They're on their way back to Jerusalem. They're in the city of Jerusalem, which was devastated. Uh, Their own land, their homeland, you might say. And now Haggai, the prophet, is coming to them, and he's going to prophesy to them a message that's directly from God. Uh, Back in the day, that's how it happened. God would pick out an individual, and he would do them with the power of the Spirit, and they would be a conduit, you might say, for a message from God to his people. And that's how a lot of the Old Testament prophecies were given. They were, they were given through prophets. Now, today we believe that because of the Scripture being complete in its entirety, we have the canon of Scripture before us, that those kind of prophecies aren't taking place. People still prophesy. People still speak forth the word of God. That's what we do every Sunday morning. But as far as actually getting a word from God, a special anointing, as some of them say, and, you know, boy, I was shaving this morning, and God just blessed me with a special anointing, and here is God's word for you this morning. Well, that doesn't happen today, because the Bible says that our our word, the word of God is complete. I mean, think how crazy it would be if everybody was around saying they had a word from God, they had a word from God. That's what happens today in some churches. And it's just mass confusion. So we believe the canon of Scripture is closed, 
And Revelation clearly says that you shouldn't add anything or take anything away from it. And so when we come together to study the Word of God, we know for sure that this is God's truth to us in its entirety. That's all that he gave us. And so occasionally when we come across somebody like Haggai, the Word of God doesn't say a whole lot about him. It doesn't say a whole lot before he appeared. It doesn't say anything about afterwards. We just don't know a lot about him. And so we looked at some different things last week, but historically, just to remind you, for maybe some of you who weren't here, remember King Cyrus, when they were in uh, Babylon, King Cyrus was moved to grant them a decree that they could be free, go back to their homeland, and build their temple. And what happened was, they were all excited, and they got back, and they started to build the temple, and for a variety of reasons, one of them being the Samaritans, who were uh, kind of a, a... viewed as almost just mongrels. (laughs) They they didn't view them as purebred Jews. They wanted to help build the temple too. And the 50,000 who came back from Babylon, the remnant said, no, we're going to do it ourselves. So the Samaritans got ticked off. They went to King Cyrus, made up a bunch of lies about the the, uh, Jews who were building the temple. And so that caused a problem between the Samaritans and the Jews, and this, the temple went unbuilt for 16 years. It just stopped. Everything stopped. They had actually laid the foundation. They had laid part of the altar down. But now it was just laid there, barren, overgrown with weeds for 16 years. And the Judean children were discouraged. They were despondent. They were kind of overrun by this opposition of the Samaritans. And you can read all about that in Ezra chapter 4. So we have 16 years, nothing's been done to build the temple, even though the king said they could. Now they're just kind of discouraged and, and nothing was going on at all, even though they were back in their homeland. And the time passed and eventually King Cyrus died. His son then committed suicide. So after a while, King Darius was the one who came into power. And when King Darius came into power, he found the decree that Cyrus made, letting the Jews go back to their homeland and build their temple. And so he reissued that decree and kind of said, yeah, that's fine, you can build the temple. And so his decree was that the children of uh, Israel would be able to come back from Babylon to Jerusalem and they were allowed to build their temple. That was a very special thing for them. Um, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. That's where they did all the sacrifices. So you can see it was kind of central to their, their worship, to their religion. Um, and so when Darius became king, he found this decree and said, yeah, you know, go ahead. If you want to build the temple, do it. Now, we talked a little bit about Haggai, and we said that he was probably with them down in Babylon for all these years. And we mentioned this, that God had been preparing him for a very special ministry. All that time, God was preparing Haggai. We don't know anything about what happened during that time. But all we know is that when Haggai's time for ministry came up and God said, okay, now I'm going to use you as a prophet, he was there and he was obedient, even though it was only for three months. Can you imagine being prepared for something for 70 years? You're all excited the first day, your brand new ministry and everything's, you know, you're ready to go. And it's only three months long. As opposed to somebody like Zechariah, who prophesied over a three-year period. And we talked about what that 
kind of spoke to our hearts and we drew out this life principle that God uses different men and women with different gifts in different places over different periods of time for different purposes. And we looked at how we're not all the same. We're all gifted differently. We all have different personalities. We all have different spiritual gifts. And so here you have the people of Israel who've been in exile for 70 years. And they have been, Haggai was part of their, their whole clan down there. And he's, God had been preparing him for this special ministry. And now God is ready to use this man the prophet Haggai. His whole, his whole ministry, his whole message is summed up in four little messages found in this book. And that's all we have. That's all we have. And if you were to relate the dates to our present time, and we can do that because the, the book of Haggai is probably one of the most uh, detailed as far as dates given. And so we can pin down exactly when all this stuff happened. And if you transfer it over to our modern day calendar it happens on august 29th is the first message october 17th is the second message december 18th there's two messages and it all happens in the year 520 bc and we saw last week how when haggai was dealing with this prophecy and bringing this message he was bringing it to the right people and these people had a devotion to and a zeal for God, and it was evident in them. Remember, these are the people that were in captivity for 70 years. Can you imagine living in one place for 70 years? Do you think you'd maybe settle down a little bit? <laughs> I think so. I think you'd probably know where all the finest stores were and the best shops to eat in, and I bet your kids would be plugged in, and, and you would be part of that community, even though you were in captivity. And so when God called them out of captivity, not all of them came. The Bible says 50,000 of them came back to Jerusalem. Because you understand, there was nothing in Jerusalem. It was wasted. It was devastated. There was nothing there. So imagine yourself saying, you know, I'm going to live where I've lived for 30, 40 years, and I'm just going to go to a place that there's just nothing there at all. Nothing there for me, nothing there for my family. There's no work. There's no businesses. Nothing. I mean, that would be a, a pretty tall order for someone to do. They were the right people, these 50,000. And second, we saw that they were in the right place. Rather than stay back in Babylon where they had all the creature comforts of home and everything else, even though they were held captive and they were, you know, that was part of their disciplinary action from the hand of God that they were down there, it was still a lot more pleasant than being in Jerusalem just with the creature comforts. But they were the right people and they were in the right place. They were in Jerusalem And then thirdly, we said that this remnant who Haggai spoke to were also, they wanted to be plugged into the right work. They wanted to be doing what God wants them to do. And that is key. If you miss anything else, don't miss that. See, these people were transferring everything. I mean, 50,000 people moving from one place to another, that's a pretty big task to accomplish. And you imagine all the families that were represented If you've ever moved, you know what's involved in moving, even if it's down the block, right? I mean, it's just a hassle. You've got to change your address. You've got to do so many different things. But can you imagine moving to a brand new place where there's nothing in all the things that you would have to do as a family to get yourself set up there? 
They needed to provide homes for their families. They needed to make a living. Back then it was through farming. They needed to establish some kind of an education program for their children. They needed to establish shops and commerce and trade because none of that existed there. And those are all valid and necessary pursuits. I mean, if you made a list of top ten things you'd have to do when you move, okay, all those things would probably be in there somewhere. You've got to have a job. You've got to have a place to live. You've got to be able to support your family. You've got to have education. You've got to do all those things. Those are all good things. But it was interesting to me that these people, in the midst of all the craziness of their big move, in addition to that, they still wanted to rebuild the temple. And I've seen so many times when people move, their families move, the last thing on their mind is, where are we going to worship? That's the last thing on their mind. Well, when we get there, we'll find a church. Don't worry about it. On occasion, I've run into people who've actually called me before they've even moved from another state. It said, hey, we saw the church on the internet. Can you tell us a little bit about it? We're going to be moving in the area, and we want to know a little more. That's the exception to the rule. The rule is, yeah, we'll figure it out when we get there. And then usually, you know, for a couple weeks when you're in a new community, I mean, you know, you know you should go to church, but you know, you got boxes to unpack, you got all this stuff to do, and you just kind of shove it off in the corner. Well, eventually we'll get plugged in. Eventually we'll find a church. Eventually. These people weren't that way. They that was number one on their list. They wanted to be about God's work. They had realized that God had allowed through a king a decree that allowed them to rebuild the temple. And that was so important to them that they were even willing to we're gonna find out set some things aside, some reprioritize their lives in order to get the work of God done. And then the last thing we looked at last week was that they did this for the right reasons. Can you imagine being held in captivity, having your temple destroyed by these people, and then having the ability to go back because the king says you can rebuild it? Do you think maybe there might be a little pride there involved in rebuilding this temple? I mean, think about the whole 9-11 thing. Think about these towers that they're constructing. You know, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But I mean, there's people, we want them to be higher than before because it just makes a statement. This wasn't in their hearts. They wanted to do this. They wanted to rebuild this temple simply because it was pleasing to God that they did it. They weren't concerned about some of those other motivations. It wasn't distorted national pride that caused them to do this. So we laid that groundwork last week. Well, today we're going to look at the first message, and that first message is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And it's a message that's a call to build God's house. That's what Haggai wants them to understand, more than anything, that it's time to get busy building God's house. Now, there's five points here in the message this morning. And we're just going to walk through the text, and we're going to see these kind of jump out at us. But let's read, as we start off here, the first four verses of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, And here's what he says. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then, verse 3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Clearly, 
This is a message of rebuke. He's looking at these people, and he's saying, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing? God, through the prophet Haggai, brought a message that was a message to God's people by God's messenger, and it was God's message. It wasn't Haggai's message. See, sometimes when you preach a message, we believe here in, in, in this church that we teach through the Word of God. So sometimes you come across a portion of Scripture, I come across a portion of Scripture, and I just go, I don't want to teach this. I just don't want to teach it. Because first of all, I don't feel qualified to teach it. <laughs> Secondly, what are the people going to think when I teach it? Because it's probably going to offend a couple people. And man, I, you know, it's just uncomfortable for me sometimes when you come to certain points in Scripture. And see, the good thing about teaching through the Bible, as we do here, is that it's not up to me. It's not up to me. We go to the next verse. If the next verse says that, hey, that's what it says. See, my, my job is not to bring you a message that's going to put a little happy smile on your face and send you home, you know, tipping through the, uh, tiptoeing through the roses. That's not my goal. That may happen occasionally, but that's not my goal. My goal is to make the Word of God alive and hopefully allow you to see the plain meaning of the text before us. I don't have any kind of special connection with God that gives me some kind of a, a special understanding of what we're reading this morning. You know, it's all about resources. It's all about just spending some hard work and understanding what the Word of God says. That's all. Anybody can do this. And so I don't want you to think that sometimes, you know, a a pastor or whatever has some kind of a a, a special deal with God. No, we're all sinners saved by His grace. And we all have the same access to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You have the same Bible I have. Okay, so you have the ability to, to, to understand this just like I do. And so it's important that we kind of lay that out there. But see, here, God was bringing a message to these people. And it was a message, it was a rebuke for procrastination. I, I, sometimes I refer to myself, I tell my wife, I said, yeah, I'm a procrastinating perfectionist. I love things perfect, but I just never seem to get there. And it's very frustrating. It just never happens. never seems to happen. There's always something else that needs to be done before it's there. Um, they were putting something off, these people were. And we're going to find out what it was. And the reason we know that is why did they keep on repeating what he says here? Look at what it says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say... And the idea is they continue to say, they're saying it over and over and over again. What are they saying? The time has not come yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's just not right. The time hasn't come yet, God. The atmosphere isn't right. The environment's not right. It's just not right now. Now, today's not the day for this. They kept on putting it off. Theoretically, what they were saying, they were saying this to God, your time has not come. Your time, God, has not come. And God has to give them a strong rebuke. And he does that for two reasons. The first reason that he wants to rebuke them because of their procrastination is they had a misunderstanding of prophecy. They didn't really get what was going on here. They misunderstood the prophecies that have gone before the prophet Haggai. Remember, these were... Jews who were repatriated back to their homeland. 
there was a remnant of probably 50,000 of them that had come out of Babylon. And as they came, they basically had accepted their situation in life, and they almost had a fatalistic outlook on life. They just looked at it and said, well, you know what? God said that we were going to be in captivity, and we were, so it's all in God's hands, and what, what could we do? They believed as they were in a prophetic sense and, and th- that they were there because of God's hand, and they couldn't do anything about their situation. That's what they truly believed in their heart. And they believed that, you know what, there's no way out of this predicament before God. And so they had a wrong reaction to what God had the message that he had given them in years before. See, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll understand this, and we'll just go over it briefly here. But if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, where Jeremiah prophesied that there's going to be a 70-year period where there would be desolations in the city of Jerusalem. Clearly, that's the prophecy. Also over in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, what does he prophesy? He prophesies that there's going to be a period of 70 years that there's just going to be desolations in Jerusalem. It's going to be desolated. And also in Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, same prophecy. Chapter 1, verse 12, excuse me. And so this remnant of 50,000 Jews that came back from Babylon, they believed mistakenly that they were in that period. They were thinking, you know, well, God can't do anything. God can't do anything. Because for 70 years, you know, they said 70 years. And so they saw it as if they began to put a, a brook, if they went out and started building the temple, that that was almost overriding the plan of God. That's how they viewed prophecy. They had a wrong attitude to the prophet. So how do you know that? Well, chapter 1, verse 2 spells it out. They say over and over again, Lord, the time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built is not here. Stop and think, how would they know that? Do they think they're God? God tells you to do something, you should do it. Why would they say such a thing to God? Because they simply believed that as they viewed God's word on this whole 70-year period, that it hadn't passed yet. And they were telling God, Lord, the time for this to happen isn't now because this time hasn't passed. The one thing I see here in verse 2 is... It's not these people saying that. It's the Lord saying that. Verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say. Isn't that interesting? That God knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they've been saying. He knows the, the, the stuff that's going around. He knows the talk around the water cooler. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can't build the temple yet. You know, 70 years isn't over yet. I know we're supposed to be doing it, but, you know, let's just not go there yet. It's not time yet. They kept on putting it off. He kept on, they kept on putting it off over and over and over and over again. You know what? God told them exactly what was in their hearts. And that's one of the best messages that you could ever hear, isn't it? The best message you could ever hear, the best preaching that you could ever hear, is when someone stands up and tells you what you're thinking. <laughs> it's a little scary sometimes. I've had people even after a Sunday morning service come, you read my mail or something? Because, man, that message this morning. Huh? It's like, no, I'm not. God's working. 
Even remember in the New Testament, in, in, in uh, John, chapter, John chapter 9, when Jesus met the woman at the well and had a conversation. And he inquired whether she had a husband. Remember what she said? She doesn't have a husband. And his answer to her was this. Yeah, you said well because you've already had some husbands and the one you're with now isn't your husband. <laughs> Uh-oh. She's found out. And it says that she looked into his eyes and she said this, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) In other words, you know something about me that nobody else knows. That's a little scary. I perceive that you're a prophet from God. And what did that lady do? She went into the town and she said, you got to come and see this man who told me everything that I've ever done. That would get your attention. That would wake you up. See, God was telling these people here through the prophet Haggai what they were thinking. They were paralyzed. They, they, they stood there and they, they had just given into a feeling of hopelessness. Inability paralyzed them. And all the effort that they could see was for no use. Because they would have to wait till God's prophetic calendar reached its destiny before God would ever allow the temple to be rebuilt. And as a result, the people of God who were called to do the work of God were indifferent. And what suffered? God's work suffered. Because they were unwilling to participate. They were unwilling to kick in their their part. Because they thought, well, the time's not here yet. I've been reading a book on William Carey written by one of his relatives, I don't know if it's great-grandson or somebody. And one of the parts of the book before William Carey, he was a great missionary to the nation of India. And before he was able to go there, he had to get permission from his religious council or whatever. And, you know, back then it was just a little different. So you'd go before this board and you would request permission to be a missionary to this foreign land. And in his testimony, he says this. One of the doctors, who was obviously a very high up on the religious council, Dr. Ryland of Northampton, after Kerry got up and said his spiel and believed that God was calling him to a foreign mission field and he was asking for their support, here's what this man, Dr. Ryland, said to this young missionary. He said, young man, sit down. And when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your aid or mine. Wow. Talk about a a way to start try to start a mission missionary movement. See, that's an attitude of those who believe that it's it's pointless to hope for God to move in these last days. People look at our situation with our country and with the world and They look at it and they look at the prophecies that are found in God's word. They say, you know, and I've done this myself. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. Hold on, because things are going to turn sour real quick. The wheels are coming off the cart. What's the use? And you begin to believe that. Because you don't see something prophesied in the word of God to tell us anything different. 
I don't see anything in the Word of God that says there's going to be a revival in Redwood City at Grace Bible Church. I don't see that. So why should I believe that? That's where these people, in the book of Haggai, that's what they were dealing with. They looked at God's prophecy and they said, well, you know what? It says 70 years of desolation, so you know, we're not even going to try to do what God has called us to do. I want to challenge that attitude this morning. Because it's that kind of attitude that really doesn't allow God any hope for God to move at all. Because it's not prophesied in the word of God. The word of God does not see a revival before the return of Jesus Christ. So why should we even pray for it? If it's not in the book, then whatever. I want to ask you a question this morning. Show me in the Bible where the Reformation was prophesied. Bet you can't do it because it's not there. But it happened. Show me in the Bible where in 1859 there was a revival prophesied within the word of God. It's not there. Show me in the Bible where God prophesied the Welsh revival or the Scottish revival or one of the many European revivals that happened in history. You're not going to be able to do it because they're not there. So why should God prophesy one that will happen before Christ comes? See, this is the predicament that they got themselves in, and I think that we can parallel over to modern day, and we begin to believe the same lie. We get in the same situation as these people in Haggai. We're still waiting for the Lord to come back. Just, let's just wait for the Lord to come back. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, we pray, but, you know, there's not a whole lot of help or hope that God's going to do anything. And what happens is when you begin believing that lie, it brings you into a, a point of paralyzed inability to work for God at all. It gives you a fatalistic attitude. And it discourages preaching. It discourages, you know, when you, when you come across people that believe that God isn't working today, why should we pray then? What's the, what's the use of praying? What's the use of coming here and hearing a message if God's not going to do something in your heart and mine? If God's not going to do something in our community? See, they had a misunderstanding of prophetic truth. And I think sometimes we get there too. We look at our world situation and we just want to give up. And we just want to say, ah, <laughs> you know what? Let's just kind of Sunday to Sunday keep on plowing along. Well, secondly, not only did they have a prophetic misunderstanding, these people, but they also had a preoccupation with materialism. Hello? (laughs) That's what it says in verse 4. It said, God replied to them, and he said, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses? While the house of God lies in ruins? While this house lies in ruins? See, God is pointing out to them three things when he calls them on this. First of all, in verse 4, he's pointing out their selfishness. That's what he's doing. He's saying in verse 4, you know, just stop and think for a moment. Just think for a moment of the time, the energy, the money, the enthusiasm that you spend on your own houses. Your paneled houses, it says. Which means it was probably on the more luxurious side. These weren't just little lean-tos, beloved. Some historians say that they may have even had gardens on the roofs. I mean, these people invested a lot in setting up their new house in their new land. 
It wasn't just a temporary little shed on a little plot of land. And so he's saying, look at the time you invest in this. The time you spend. And here's my house, God's house is what he's saying. The chief house of all, and it lies in ruins. It lies in waste. Am I saying we shouldn't have nice houses? No, that's not what I'm saying. Am I saying we shouldn't work on our houses? No, I'm not saying that either. You know what? You can fill in that word house with anything. You can fill in that word house. You know, why do you spend so much time in your jobs? Why do you spend so much time with your family? Why do you spend so much time in your community, in your homeowners, in whatever you want? Fill in the little blank. Whatever you spend most of your time in, what he's saying is check your priorities. Check your priorities. Because a lot of times our priorities just default are selfish. I know mine are. I mean, we all deal with that on an everyday basis. There's a lot of times when, you know, there's, there's things that you, you go and you got to, you know, go out and visit or do, do whatever. And sometimes I don't feel like doing it. Why? Because I'm selfish. I want to spend time doing what I want to do. You know, it's, 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 it's and we're always going to have that issue. And so he's just saying there, just pointing out, first of all, you need to deal with some selfishness in your own life. Sometimes we put up so many boundaries around us, and, you know, that's kind of been a fad thing now. you got books out called Boundaries and everything. Well, you know, yeah, I'll serve in, in the church, but, you know, I just got to protect everything. I can't get out of my comfort zone. I, oh. You know, my wife said the other day, she's, you know, because obviously Shelly's gone for a couple weeks up visiting her daughter, and you can pray that she has a good trip. But she brought up, she said, you know, boy, it's, it's going to be difficult the next couple of weeks, huh? I said, why? She goes, well, Shelly's gone. I said, well, yeah, I'll miss, miss her voice on Sunday, you know. And she goes, yeah, but it's got to be difficult for you to... I said, well, I don't know if it's difficult. I mean, I've been doing it for 13 years. I don't, I don't know if it's difficult. Would it be nice to have a couple more voices helping out? Yeah, do I feel competent in my musical ability and stuff to lead worship? No. But the last time I checked, there's not a line at the door. Okay, saying, hey, pastor, I want to help. So what do you do? I could very easily say, you know what, we're not having any music. We'll sing a cappella. I don't know if somebody else can do it. But you know what? When there's a need, you got to fill it. That's, that's what I believe. I believe that we've been called not to selfishness, but to servanthood. That's what God desires of us. And so, you know, I'm not saying that you you know, totally disregard your family. I'm not saying that, you know, you do the opposite. It comes down to a balance. You have to have priorities in order. But I guarantee you, if you sit down and you timeline your week, what is there, 168 hours in a week, and you figure out how much time you spend at work and how much time you spend asleep and how much time you spend eating, how much time you spend with your family and how much time, and you get down to the end and you figure out how much time you actually spend serving God. It's, it's almost not even there for most of us. And we need to stop and ask God, go before God. This isn't a message of guilt. It's a message of reality. It's saying, okay, you know what? Let's honestly look at ourselves and our lives and say if things maybe got out of whack a little. Maybe I've grown a little too comfortable here in this world. 
and maybe I need to set aside some of my own selfish desires and allow those to become servant desires, to serve the body of Christ, to serve the community, to serve God in some form or fashion. Secondly, he pointed out their indifference because he points out to them that God's house, my house, he says, lies in ruins, lies in waste, one translation says. Now, don't forget, these folks have been in captivity for 70 years. 70 years, they didn't have a temple because they weren't allowed to have a temple. And when they came out of captivity, they were really indifferent to the need of having a temple. Hey, we've been without it for so long, who cares? They really grew indifferent to their situation. I know sometimes when we, or even myself in my own personal life, when you go through a period of time and you don't see God's blessing, you begin to grow indifferent. You begin to say, well, I guess that's the way it is. We get used to it. We almost don't even realize it's not there. I was thinking this morning, what if, what if next Sunday, in this church, we had 150 people? 150 people sitting here, listening to a message, singing songs, praising God. That'd be amazing. It'd be a whole lot different than having 40 or 60 people. It's not about numbers. But what I'm saying is, think of how you would, what, 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 would that, what, what kind of motivation would that put under you? If all of a sudden 150 people showed up here. And 100 of them stayed for the refreshments afterwards, Darlene. Do you think maybe you'd be a little more motivated to think, how are we going to do this? Wow, we need, we need to get some more people. We need, we need to get some more helpers. We need to figure out how this is going to work. What if instead of two or four kids in Sunday school, we had 25 or we had 40? See? But because that doesn't happen, what do we do? We, we, we grow indifferent to it. We think, well, eh, that's, you know, we're not about that, and, and we almost pride ourselves in being small. That's not from God. We need to wake up and we need to begin to realize that God still wants to work in this church. Don't grow indifferent to God's blessing here. And the third thing he wanted to let them know, remember their hostile neighbors, the Samaritans. I mean, the situation was this. The Jews wanted to build the temple. They started to build the temple, laid down the foundation. The Samaritans caused a problem. They ran to the king, and the king didn't even decree that they couldn't continue to build the temple. That never happened. What happened? These Jews who were building the temple, they just got nervous. And because the Samaritans raised a little problem there, you can read about it in the Old Testament, that they just quit. They just gave up at the slightest little opposition in their way. 
because they were already downtrodden. They were worn out from being in captivity. They'd been without a temple. They didn't really care whether they had a temple. They were hopeless. They had a misunderstanding of God's prophecies. And then so as soon as the Samaritans came along and said, you know, we're going to cause problems for you if you don't let us build, help you build the temple. What they do? Oh, fine, we're not going to build it at all. For 16 years, nothing was done to the temple because of this little group that raised some opposition. Let us not do that today. Let us not have that attitude. Beloved, I tell you this morning, our God is as great as he has ever been. Our God can do as much as he has ever done. Don't fall into this prophetic misunderstanding. Don't be preoccupied with all the materialistic things that we have in our lives today. Because when we get to that point, when we reach that, it's a tragedy. And that's what we see here. That these people got into such a state. They got into such a mental state. And look at what it says in verse 2. I don't know if you noticed this or not. But it says in Haggai 1-2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, what's the next word in your Bible? These people? These people? I think it's kind of interesting that God doesn't call them my people. They were, but they definitely weren't acting like it. He said this people, or these people. God gave them a a rebuke for their procrastination. To the point where they weren't living up to who they were supposed to be as far as God is concerned. And he has to refer to them as, you know, this people, not my people. We need to understand that God wants to bless us as individuals, as families, as a church. Don't fall into believing the lie that, no, no, it's not the time. It's not the time. Let's just kind of put it off. Don't believe that at all. The second point I want to share with you this morning, not only did they receive a rebuke for their procrastination, but look at, in verses 5 and 6, we see a reaping of poverty. 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Haggai chapter 1, he says this, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Take inventory. Stop and look at your own heart. Look at your own life. Don't look at your neighbor, look at yourself. That's what he's saying. Then he says this in verse 6, you have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes, it says. The reaping of poverty is the second point in Haggai's message. They were reaping nothing but absolute poverty. And what Haggai is saying here through the Spirit of God who's speaking through him, it says, you know what? People, we're the ones who lose out. It's not God. It's not God who loses out when we're not living for him and we're not having our priorities in the right order and we're not serving him the way we should. We're the ones that lose out. Do you know that you can't rob God? You can't rob God. In the long run, We are the ones who will suffer. So what God did did was this. He began to remove all of their material blessings. He just said, okay, you got these things all mixed up. You're not not doing what I told you to do. So I got to help you out a little bit. 
First of all, he hit him in the area of agriculture. He says in verse 6, you plant much, but you harvest little. You're out there planting day after day after day, but you're, you're not reaping any crops. You're doing the work. They were doing the work. They knew how to farm. But they weren't harvesting anything. Secondly, he hit their economy, and he hit it hard. And if that doesn't speak to your heart today, I don't know what will. The economy in their day, we can see this in verse, from this verse, verse 6, it couldn't meet the individual people's needs. It was just, it was just out of whack. I heard a guy the other day, somebody said, how's, how's the job going, whatever. He said, eh, whatever, you know, and they were going through some union battles back and forth. And he said, yeah, it's getting to the point where, you know what, my take-home pay doesn't even take me home. <laughs> Can't even afford the gas to get home from work. See, that happened in that day as well. But the result, the reason it happened was God robbed them of all that they had. Finally, inflation took over, and it was so much that money that they even had to put in their pockets, it was as if they had holes in their pockets, and it just fell out into the streets. I mean, if that doesn't describe our economy today, people are working hard, but they're, they're unable to make the ends meet. Why did this happen? It was from the hand of God. This wasn't just some fluke thing. It was directly from God's hand. God did it. See, and that's what God does when, when men and women turn away from him. That's what happens. There are certain things that come into their lives, and usually are and can be, not because it's just a coincidence, but because they've turned their back on God. They've turned their back on Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in a couple different verses, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, Chapter 26 and verse 18. Let me just read this for you. Leviticus 26, verse 18. It says, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, this is God speaking, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and the strength and your strength shall not be spent in vain. And your strength shall be spent in vain, excuse me, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. God prophesied what was going to happen before it even happened if they disobeyed him. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 38, it says, You shall carry much seed into the field and gather little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither Drink of the wine, nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all of your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. See, there is a law in God's word speaking as far as law of the harvest. What you sow is what? What you reap, right? You see that in the Old Testament over and over again. There's another law of the harvest, and it's this. If you sow something un, in an unworthy manner, you're never going to reap anything. That's part of the deal. And that's what was happening here. A lot of times, think of it in modern day vernacular, just our spirituality today. A lot of gospel preaching is going on all over the world. There's really an explosion of gospel 
being preached in our world, in the Western world, all over the world. But there's very little being sown from that. And that means there's something wrong. There's something wrong there. Thirdly, look at the reason for their poverty. The reason for their poverty. And this is rather clear. The rebuke of their procrastination, the reaping of the poverty, and then the reason for their poverty. It says in verse 9, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. This is God speaking. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. The reason for their poverty was simple. God. (laughs) It was God by his own design. Verse 10, he held back the rain. And you know, over there in that area, If you don't have rain, if you don't have water, you're not going to have crops. And because he held back the rain, the crops failed, verse 11. And God was saying this in verse 9. If you don't take as much care over my house as you do your own house, you better watch out because I'm going to blow it all away. You're not going to have your prosperity. You're not going to have your luxury, all your pleasure. It's all going to be gone. And God intervened in the life of Judah, and there was this economic disaster. The people couldn't till the fields any longer. They toiled in the fields night after night after night, but got nothing from it, no harvest. I mean, stop and think of it. Today, even, in our world, to our generation, in the spiritual sense, to the church of Jesus Christ, it still works like this. We toil, we toil, we work, we work but we see little return. And a lot of that has to do with disobedience. A lot of that has to do with misplaced priorities. I mean, think of our own country, beloved. Just think of the United States as a country. Think of all the incredible manufacturing and education and economy that we've done so well for so long. And because we've taken our eyes off of God and off of Christ, look at where it's come, what it's come down to. I mean, these are not just coincidental things that happen. It's the law of God. See, God understands that when people turn away from him, he needs to turn their heart back. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. See, when people are in their direst need, when they're stuck in the corner and they don't have anywhere to go, that's when they're more likely to turn to Christ. He understands that. That's when they're more likely to come to God. That's when they need something bigger than just themselves to pull themselves out of the pit. C.S. Lewis said this. I think I have it on a slide there. Pain is the megaphone of God. Pain is the megaphone of God. And that is so true. There's been a financial crisis. There's been stock exchange. It's fallen. All this stuff is happening. There's all these 
procrastinators out there that, that are, you know, making all these certain, uh, you know, predictions and everything. But God is saying, you know what? I am still God and I'm still on the throne and you're still a puny little creature. You're not infinite. You're not eternal. You're going to pass away, and everything around you is going to pass away, but my word and my being will never pass away. And I don't want you to ever forget that. It says in verse 9 there in our text that they looked for much. In other words, they went out and they worked hard, and they were anticipating a harvest. That speaks to their faith. They were thinking, hey, we're doing the right thing. We're putting the seed in the ground. We're doing everything right. Where is the harvest? It says they looked for much, and after they sowed, they were expecting something to come back. They were looking for things to happen. But the unfortunate thing is they weren't willing to give the obedient cost to God that would necessitate the covenant that was needed there. That when you give, God will give back to you. They weren't willing to go there. See, we sow a lot. We expect a lot. That's good. But beloved, if you're not willing to give everything, we're not going to reap anything. And you know I'm not talking finances because we don't talk about that. I'm not talking finances. I'm talking about your being. I'm talking about your desire, your, your willingness to be used by God. Let's look at the fourth point. A remedy for this poverty. A remedy for this poverty. The remedy is found in verse 5. It's also found again in verse 7 and in verse 8. He says it over and over again to him. What's he say? Three words. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Take a hard look at yourself. It comes down to one thing. See, there's, there's one reason, and it's quite easy to understand, but it's very difficult for you or I to actually implement this. But it comes down to this. All of this, all of this was happening to these people at this time because of one thing, their, their, lack, of, their lack of obedience to God. We sang a hymn this morning. Some people, I've heard people at times say, oh, well, that's kind of a simplistic hymn. Trust and obey. But it's true. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy, to be content in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And in verse 7, God, we see here, is speaking a second time. And he says, You know what? The Lord of hosts says once again, consider your ways. Consider your ways. I mean, if God speaks once, he doesn't even have to do that once, but he did. He did it not only once, but twice and three times. See, God is speaking to certain people even here this morning. He's working in some of our lives and and he's, he's telling us, you know what, we need to consider our ways. We need to reflect upon our priorities. We need to readjust our lives so that we can be used by God in a greater way. Are we open to God's will? And if we don't listen, beloved, if we don't listen, there's going to be dire consequences. God is not obliged to speak to us once or twice, but he does here three times. If God's speaking to your heart this morning, maybe about personal revival in your own life, 
Maybe about giving everything, just giving it up to God, serving him, seeing his spirit being manifest in your walk daily and with those around you. I I beg you this morning, listen to that. Small voice is crying out, consider your ways. Do something about it. Repent, Christian, non-Christian, whatever it takes. Bring your sins to God. Forsake them. Lay them down. He's a forgiving, loving God. Lay down those things that so easily beset us, the Bible tells us, so that we can run the race, so that we can win the prize, so we don't forfeit it in this life. What is it our blessed Lord said in Matthew 6, 33? He said, seek first the kingdom of God. And what? His righteousness. And then all these other things are going to be added on to you. I'm not saying that you go home and you sell your homes and you sell your cars and you, know, you forsake everything. That's not what I'm saying. It's a matter of priority in the heart. That's what God is saying here. He's not begrudging them having nice houses to live in. But he's saying when your priority is so out of whack that you have a nice house and the temple of God is not built, there's something wrong. And when we have the mentality of Sunday go to meeting, and you know that's about it for us for the week, maybe we hop into a Bible study during the week and that kind of taps out our, our, our Christian service, there's something wrong. Read the New Testament. Read the book of Acts. We, we say we want to be a Bible-believing, biblical church. What they do in the New Testament? said so they went house to house daily, fellowshipping, breaking bread, prayer. I mean, why is it that we have maybe one, two, three people that come to a prayer meeting on a Sunday morning before our service? Maybe we don't believe God answers prayer anymore. Maybe we've grown indifferent to the idea of of coming and asking God to work through his word, through the worship, through our fellowship together. Maybe we just kind of have grown too lax and comfortable. Just come in, hear the message, sing the songs, go over to the fellowship hall, eat, have a little fellowship, then go home. I think God wants more from us. Fifth thing, the last thing, is the renewal of purpose. And this is important. Verses 12 to 15. Verses 12 to 15. He says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. You see that? All. All the remnant of the people. Who's that include? That includes young, old, boy, girl, men, women old, sick, well, whatever, all, everybody. What does it say they did? The next word says they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Underline that word obeyed. And it says, and they also obeyed the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. See, that's what churches need today. They need somebody who's willing to stand up and bring God's message to God's people, not get up there and apologize and, oh, you know, hope you don't, don't want to hurt your feelings. No, we, we need bold people in pulpits today. And here's what he says. I am with you, declares the Lord. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and governor of Judea, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant. All 50,000 of these children of Judah, all the people. And it says, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. 
there was a renewal of purpose. And the people responded to God's word. I mean, we need to respond to God's word, beloved. It's not good enough for you to come here on Sunday and hear it and listen to it politely. Not just hide it in your head, but put it in your heart. Be like Mary in the New Testament where it says that she pondered those things in her heart. And then she acted upon them. It says there in verse 13 that they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And you say, well, maybe it was easy for them. Are are you serious? You think this was easy for them? They just came out of 70 years of captivity. They had spent the last 16 years giving up on a dream of rebuilding the temple. They're basically despondent. But you know what? Maybe that's where you're at in your Christian life. Maybe you've spent a sum of your Christian life and now you just look at yourself and you're just despondent with yourself. You just kind of, this this doesn't work. Kind of a lukewarmness has grown in as it did over these 16 years with these people. You know, we're going to find this out, but it's interesting to me that they spent 16 years in spiritual lukewarmness. And you know how long it took for them to get back to what God had called them to do? Four weeks. Four weeks. Not four years. Not four months. Four weeks. See, don't believe the lie of the devil that you're going to have to wait till you're more spiritual. And that's going to take time. It might even take months for me to get plugged into ministry because I'm just not there yet. Don't get me wrong. Spirituality and spiritual maturity does take time. But the devil would love for you to believe that you could never participate in ministry, that you could never be part of anything. But you have to fall back on the Spirit of God and realize that he can do that through you. In just four weeks, they had begun work on this temple that they had not built for 16 years. And the reason they didn't do it is because Satan's cry was in their hearts and in their minds saying, you know what, the time isn't here yet. It's not time to go yet. God's prophecy said 70 years. The time's not up yet. Don't believe a word of that. My friend, if God is speaking to you today about prayer, well, the time has come to start praying. And I mean start praying now. If God has spoken to you about spreading the gospel, about evangelism, don't wait till you feel like you're able to do it or you've gone through some evangelism course. Do it now. If God is speaking to you about our need in this fellowship for prayer and for seeking God's face, the time is now. Let's face it, how long have we got? Things aren't getting any better. And when we tell non-believers who aren't saved, now is the day of salvation, today is the accepted time, don't you feel a little hypocritical when it comes to your own service and sanctified living that you say, well, I'm not comfortable with this yet, I'm going to wait another day, another year, another whatever. See, they had renewed purpose here. And I don't want you to miss the fact that God told them of his assurance, first of all. Look at what it says there in verse 13. It says, the Lord says to them, I am what? With you. I am with you. He says that he was with them. Even at that moment in time, he was saying, I am with you. 
But he's also saying, but you've got to act. I'm here with you, but you've got to act upon my presence in your life. Or you know what? Nothing's going to happen. These rocks are not going to build themselves. This temple's not going to build itself. It's not enough just to be simply saved. I mean, it's enough to get you to heaven, don't get me wrong. But I don't think it's enough to please God. Because you've got to be saved and act upon your salvation. The word of God says, work out your salvation day by day. We find it throughout scripture. God said these same words to Isaac and to Jacob. God said it to Moses before he was going to deliver Israel in Exodus chapter 4. He says, I am with you. God said it again to Joshua when he was going into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan. He said, I am with you, Joshua. He told Jeremiah the prophet as a little child when he called him to be a prophet to the nations. He says, Jeremiah, I am with you. He told Israel in their times of trouble through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43. He said, I'll be with you. And even in the New Testament, we see that he told his disciples. He told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel and what he says. And I will be with you. He even said to the Apostle Paul when he went into Corinth, because Paul didn't know what was going to happen to him. He didn't know if he was going to have to give up his life. He didn't know. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Paul, I am with you. And you know what, beloved? God says to his church today. He says to his child today who is hurting to the child who wants to do something more for God. Go and do it, because I am with you. And it says there that the Lord stirred up Zerubbabel, this Joshua, and all of the people. But it started with the leadership, who had grown indifference to obey God's voice. Someone once said, a people can only rise as high as the leadership is willing to take them. That's why a couple weeks ago, I made kind of a clarion cry. Hey, guys, I need some help. Second thing this shows me here, it's not only that he touched the hearts of the leadership, but he also, this was not just some emotional experience for them, but it was a revolutionary experience for them. It was something that lasted. It was something that, that changed them. It persevered through them building the temple until it was built. And the third thing we can apply from this is that they acted upon what God had told them. They obeyed. They listened. And what this means for all of us here this morning is, you know what? There's something for us to do. I don't know what it is. I can't dictate to you how God wants to use you, but you know yourself better than anybody, and God knows you better than you know yourself. And he's gifted you in certain ways. And he expects you to use those giftings in the ministry of this local church. And as a result of them acting on it, on the 21st of December, 520 B.C., work began on the temple. And the people responded. And in a very short time, even though they had been asleep at the wheel for 16 years... They considered their ways, they obeyed God, they put things in order. And you know what it says? It says to all the children of God to forget about the wasted years. Don't look back. Don't say, yeah, I guess I should have been more involved and and feel good. Don't do that. Just break up the fallow ground and jump in and get busy. Because God says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. 
See, Judah had to rethink its priorities. The temple of God today is the church of the living God. And let me ask you this question as we close. How much building is going on? How much building is going on? And what is your part in it? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we thank you that even though we live in days that are uncertain with our economy and just the world situation, I pray that we would not grow weary in doing good. Help us not to grow faint as a church. Because I know that we will reap in due season if we don't faint. But Lord, I know that it's going to take all hands on deck. Help us sow and help us labor. And help us work to always know and be assured that within our lives that we are living in full obedience to Christ. It has to start there. It has to start with us as individuals. And as we walk out of this building today into a lost and dying world filled with sin, I pray that you would put an urgency in our hearts to share the gospel with those who have yet to hear. That we would break through the comfort zone and invite people to hear the life-giving message of Christ here in this church. That we wouldn't be shy about the church that we are. That we would be willing to celebrate it. That this is a church that teaches the word of God. That this is a church that's not interested in entertainment, but it's interested in edification. That we're interested in the things of God. This is a church where someone can come along and say, you know, Pastor, I've been, I've been praying about helping the homeless. Hey, God bless you. We'll get behind you 100%. Or I've been thinking about this, or I've been thinking about that. There's no agenda here other than to do what God has called us to do. But Lord, may it be as it was in Haggai's day, for the glory of that latter house may be greater than that of the former. Lord, give us hope today that the best here in this church is yet to come. Bless us today. In Christ's name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll uh, close with a little chorus.